Welcome back to the Coaching Kernan Show, Real Voices of the Game. Today we have current assistant to the general manager with the Washington Nationals, Bob Schaefer. Bob, welcome to the show. 50 plus years, if I did my math right, in professional baseball, 1966 draft pick as uh, by the Cardinals as a shortstop. But a lot of people don't remember, though, you were the 1965 home run champion with the NCAA, UConn Huskies. I want to make sure we, we get to that sometime in the show. Also went to the College World Series. Um, spent time as a skipper in the major leagues, a lot of time as a manager in the, in the minors, um, have touched a lot of coaches. Uh, and that's, the, I mentioned to you before we went on the air, the biggest takeaway uh, that I had from talking to people in preparation for this is that that you're a guy that knows how to develop coaches. I think it was 18 plus you put in, in uh, professional baseball as coaches. And I'm joined here, I'm Dave D'Agostino, your host, joined by Kevin Kernan, America's most beloved sports writer as my co-host. Kevin, welcome back to the show too. Great to be here and great to have Bob on. Yeah. So this is episode 17, Real Voices of the Game. Uh, uh, Kevin, why don't I let you get started with Bob here um, to get our show rolling today? Sure. Um, There's so many things you can talk to Bob about. I mean, you know, I I saw him all the time at the ballpark. Um, You know, he's played it, he's coached it, he's managed it. But I I like to start with some big names right away. And Bob, tell us – Tell us what it was like to get thrown to the ground by Bo Jackson. Well, he didn't actually throw me, but um, <laughs> they had substitute umpires in spring training one year, and this guy called Bo out in strikes. So Bo, uh, he, he, you know, kind of gave him a little grief, and he walked away, but the umpire followed him, kind of baited him. So Bo spun around. So I ran down from coaching first base to get between Bo and the umpire and try to calm him down. Next thing I know, I'm three feet in the air. He picked me up by my elbows. He sent me down, spun me around. I ran back to coach first, and the guys in the Rangers dugout, they're all bursting out laughing. You know, I'm coaching first, and Bo, he never did get thrown out, but uh, whatever. So next day I said to him, I said, Bo, you know, I'm just trying to keep you out of trouble. He said, well, don't fool with me when I'm mad. I used a couple different words, but he said, don't fool with me when I'm, when I'm mad. I said, Bo, I'm just trying to keep you out of trouble. He said, well, I, I said, and thanks for not throwing me. He said, Shafe, I, I would never throw you. Oh, but, wow. Uh, I saw Bo a few years ago at the Scouts Banquet out in L.A., and he came up to me. He said, remember the time I picked you up? I said, yeah. I said, probably can't do it anymore. I'm probably 30 pounds heavier. He said, no, I could still do it. <laughs> well, well, that's the thing. His strength was amazing, and you were doing your job. You know, that's what coaches and managers have to do, get in the middle of that, especially in that situation where the inexperienced umpire really right. just uh, showing him up and things like that. But uh, seeing him close up to Bo Jackson uh, – <laughs> Um, uh, must have been amazing. His hitting, his fielding, his uh, you know ability to climb walls, all, all those things that you know about. There's no doubt. I mean, he could have been the best baseball player ever played. I think. I mean, he had all the tools. You, know, you talk about five tool guy. He was a tremendous human being too. He was a great guy to be around. And uh, if he didn't get hurt, it was a tragedy he got hurt really because uh, he was just exciting to watch. He might strike out three times one night, next night he might hit two, three home runs. But you know, he could play outfield, uh, and he liked to play. He was a great teammate. And uh, I still watch some of the highlights on uh, YouTube and whatever. And uh, it was the good old days, you know, when the guys ran hard all the time. And, and they were like, you know, they weren't all muscle bound. But, you know, Bo said he never lifted weights. And I believe that. He was just farmer strong, so to speak. And uh, But he could do so many things. And he was so fun to watch. And, uh, he's, you know, I was fortunate to watch him for three years. Yeah. And, and um, one one other bow question because it just fast you know he fascinates me I, you know watching him play and things like that but you you have a you know uh, you have a story about how he was able to climb walls right how what what did he tell you about that his ability to climb well he told me that when he was a kid they lock him out of the house so he run and jump up inside the house and get in a second story window I said Bo you know, you're not talking to guys in the street corner right now yeah I don't believe that. He said, no, no, I could, I could. So now we're playing in Kansas City. And in those days, the wall was like 16 feet high. And, uh, you know, he could he, he could put like almost two steps on the wall. He never got over the wall there, but he got close to it. But I was in Baltimore at the time when he, he ran along the side of the fence or, you know, he was chasing a fly ball and he caught it. And his momentum took him into the fence. And he went, or, you know, he took two or three steps on the fence and came down again. And you see that in a lot of highlight films right now. But uh, he was a special guy, no doubt about it. And, uh, I don't think there ever be another Bo Jackson. No, and um, you know, of course, what he did too. I, you know, you talk about his uh, what what a good human being he is as well. You know, he covered all the expenses for the Evaldi victim families. I mean, so that tells you a lot about Bo as well. And 
But I think uh, before I turn it over to Dave for a few questions, uh, you know, one of the points I want to make here so people understand is that you've really kind of, you're more of a teacher type guy and you got into coaching and you, you cross paths with some amazing teams and players. And we can go into that in a little depth later, but I want to kick it off with the, uh, you know, your, your, your time with the, in the Mets organization and, uh, you know, guys like Dykstra and things like that. And Kevin Mitchell, you know, I remember Joe McElvain telling me about how he scouted <laughs> Kevin Mitchell. Uh, he went out to San Diego um, and uh, it was a tryout camp. I think this is what he told me years ago. And, and Mitchell basically showed up in street clothes, you know, no spikes, no nothing. And uh, just crushed the ball. And right then and there, he knew he was going to be something special. But you, you had some of these guys in the minor leagues, right? Yeah, I was fortunate. They made me a lot of a pretty good coach and manager. But, uh, you know, Mitch was probably the second best athlete I ever coached who'd been around. And I managed him a couple of years in the minor leagues. And I remember he was going to make my team in spring training. And one of the managers that had him the year before said, you're not going to like this guy. He's a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Well, I tell you right now, he was nothing but a great guy. Uh, I had a lot of fireside chats with him. You know, he came from a, a bad area in San Diego. He lived with his grandmother. But he's one of the most loyal guys ever been around and a tremendous athlete. And he just had a natural feel for hitting. And uh, sometimes, like, he get a little slumped and, you know, didn't go, wasn't going too well. He says, I need, I, I need a day off. I said, Mitch, I need you today. I'll give you tomorrow off. Well, he didn't really need a day off. He just lost a little bit of confidence. So he played that day, probably got two or three hits. So he forgot about having a day off, and which was good. But, but he was just uh, – you know, he's just a natural hitter. I mean, he comes to me one time. He said, what am I doing wrong? I said, Mitch, just see the ball and hit the ball. You're a natural hitter. Don't be thinking. Just sometimes he moved his hands back too far, so the swing got a little long. I just keep your hands up here and keep the swing short. But he could drive the ball to right field. He could hit home runs to left field. And uh, another time he came to me early in his career, I was in double A, and he says, how do you hit left-handed pitchers? I said, I don't know. I couldn't hit him either. I was left-handed hitter. <laughs> but he just laughed. But I said, Mitch, it's like a righty. Just see the ball and hit the ball. I said, don't think about it. But, you know, he didn't play that much baseball, like you said. He came from a trial camp, and I don't know if he really played much organized baseball, but he had a great baseball mind. I mean, he really had a good feel for the game for a guy that didn't have a lot of background in the game. And, uh, you know, of course, he made himself a tremendous big league player. And uh, I I still talk to him now and then. He calls me, and uh, he calls me his white brother from a different mother. And I I said, Mitch, you know, yeah, and I call him once in a while. He had some health issues and everything, but he's doing well now, and uh, someday I get to play golf with him. Fantastic. Those are, those are great stories. On, on the Bo Jackson note, uh, we used to take part in the Bo Bikes Bama event, which helps fund for the state of Alabama. He rides across the state, and he was nice enough to sign a, a college baseball jersey for my son Tanner um, after my son approached him at the event and said, I still think you're the best athlete on that ESPN poll. I'm mad that you got beat by that horse. I guess the ESPN voted secretary as the best athlete of all time and Bo Jackson, number two. So Bo was nice enough to sign a jersey for him with that sheepish comment. Um, So, Bob, you've got a great reputation for coaching coaches. I think I mentioned 18 guys have made it to the bigs as a coach that have been under your tutelage. Uh, Talk a little bit to our, our audience, which is both youth coaches, college coaches, pro coaches. We have young players about the psychology of coaching. We, we get coached to play, but not always to coach the coach. Uh, what, what kind of things do you pass on to these coaches as you mentor them? Well, first of all, you know, my background, I went to the University of Connecticut and I signed with the Cardinals. And uh, after three years, I just think I would, didn't think I was really good enough to make it to the big league. So I quit, but I was determined to come back as a coach. And fortunately, I, I coached in high school for 12 years and I got a job in the Cape Cod League. And Jack Butterfield, who ran the minor leagues and player development with uh, the Yankees, who I played against when I went to UConn, he was a coach at Maine. He called me and said that uh, George Steinbrenner wants to hire people to know how to teach. And I saw you coach. I saw you play. I think you're a great teacher. We'd like to hire you. Well, he went off me a job coaching in the minor leagues. I said, well, I'd rather manage in the Cape Cod League. But if you get a managing job someday, call me. So next year, according to us, uh, you know, he called me. They're going to open up Greensboro as a minor league team and A-ball. And he said, you want to manage Greensboro? I said, yeah, he said, I'll give you 10 days to think about it. Well, the next day I call him back, and my wife was all for it. I mean, after 12 years coaching and teaching in high school, I figured I'd got to try something different. So I went back and, yeah, became my league manager. Well, when I played in the, with the Cardinal organization, George Kissel was the first manager I played for, and he should be in the Hall of Fame. This guy was probably the best teacher 
And there's other guys in the same category as him, but not quite as good as George, I don't think. But George has a lot of disciples in the game. You know, I talked to Jimmy Williams, you know, Joe Torre. They all learned a whole lot from George Kissel. But I was fortunate that I learned a lot from George. And, uh, you know, I have a master's degree in teaching, but I kind of have a doctor's degree in baseball because the guys like George Kissel and the other people. And I was fortunate to work for a lot of good organizations and around a lot of good people. And I still got notes from George Kissel and other people I wrote down. And I, I learned, you know, learned about the game. So now I'm going to take over for the uh, Red Sox as director of player development. Uh, they had some great people there already. Maybe not in the right situation, right position, but I juggled them around a little bit. I brought some other guys in and I put a manual together you know, about how to coach, how to teach. Because even though you played, you don't know how to even organize a batting practice group. Sometimes you watch a team and you got all the infielders hitting in one group and nobody in the infield taking ground balls. So that's little techniques of coaching and everything. It's just organization. And, um, you know, a lot of guys that I, I, I hired, they knew how to play, but they didn't really know how to put it together in a teaching program. So we stressed that a lot. I, we put together a manual, how to do everything, how to take batting practice. You know, we had pitchers hitting fungos and coaches coaching in the field rather than hitting fungos. Um, just little techniques like that. And uh, I had a great staff in the minor leagues. Like I said, 18 guys. You know, made it to the big leagues as a manager, coach, mostly as a coach first. But, you know, Bob Guerin and Ken Maka became managers. And. We just, uh, it, was, it was great. And it was like, we all worked together. No one was looking for a better job. I just told them it was only maybe five great jobs, but if you do your job, you get a better job. You know, I helped guys get better jobs like Bill Madlock. I hired him, uh, Gerald Perry hired him, and they got big league coaching jobs from being a minor league coach with us. So I think, you know, the biggest thing in baseball, I think, is that people have to teach guys how to coach. I go around now, I see some of these minor league teams play. And I feel bad for some of these guys out there. They just don't have a clue what they're doing and how to do it because they don't have the right people teaching them because they never had a background to teach them. A lot of scouts, no offense to the scouts, but they didn't never run on the field. They never was in a position to have to organize a workout, how to teach guys how to play. And the big thing about teaching is like, I think the timing of teaching is more important. I mean, there's overcoaching, there's undercoaching, but I think the timing of coaching is most important where some guys, when they make a mistake, you can go to them right away. Other guys, first of all, they know they made a mistake, so you wait till maybe the next day or later on in the game. But you have to address everything. I mean, they have to learn. And I think some of the problem in baseball today is that I don't know how much coaching these guys are getting because I think sometimes the coaches are afraid to you know, step on their toes a little bit. But I see stuff, as we all do. The game has changed a lot. The fundamentals are not very good in some, some areas. And... Uh, but it starts in minor leagues and, you know, good minor league organizations that have a uh, development program where the coaches learn and the coaches learn, the players learn. Those are, those are great points. We want to get into some of those uh, techniques and strategies that maybe are lacking right, in, right now. Um, I want to get into some early game strategies you mentioned to me on the phone. And I'll tell our audience, we have had a couple conversations in preparation for this and I left a better coach. I took lots of notes. You, you gave me some things to read and I, and I appreciate that. Talk about your philosophy on sacrifice bunts in the first seven innings of a game, as opposed to hit and run. Um, I was, I was uh, enthralled by that when we talked about that. Well, when I managed in my leagues, our teams were fortunate. I mean, I had some great players and we led the league in hitting or right up there every time. And I was not a big believer in sacrifice bunting early in the game, but you know, cause you want to get a big inning. And that's where the statistical, analytical people, that's why there's hardly any sacrifice bunts now. But the problem is, late in the game, when you get the winning run on first base, even a go-ahead run, go run on first base, eighth or ninth inning, and a right hitter up, you don't want to have one of your better hitters bunting, but with a right hitter up, you got to bunt him to second base. Because now you put the winning run on second base, so it puts pressure on the pitcher, it puts pressure on the, on the infielders, keep the ball in the infield, and one base hit, you're probably going to win the game. So... I think the sacrifice bunt is very important, but again, when I was managing, we a lot of times we bunt for a base hit rather than sacrifice, and uh, especially man at first and second. You know, I had a guy bunt for a hit. You know, but, you know, drag it down third base side or push it if you're left-handed hitter, and uh, you know, at the least you're going to get a sacrifice situation out of it, or you might get the bases loaded. But anyway, nobody wants to give up outs early in the game. I think some of the problems with the you know, analytics we have now is that they look at the whole game and not the individual part of the game. Like I said, the eighth, ninth inning is different than the first through seventh inning. So I just think that you put pressure on the other team. Like I said, put pressure on the pitcher to make a pitch. You put pressure on the infielders keeping the infield. You one base hit, you go ahead and maybe win the game right then and there. 
What about I'm going to flip the side of the ball now on the defensive side? What about share with our audience about your philosophy about infield in in the first inning with a runner uh, on third base? Well, one of my pet peeves, and uh, Larry Bow and I talk about this all the time since we coach together, but you're watching a game and there's man on third base, there's nobody out, and you don't want to give that run up by the same token. Uh, you know, you, you, don't, you, gotta, you can't play on the grass. I mean, the first thing the third base coach does run on third when nobody out is make it go through. I see these, even in big league teams, in minor leagues you see it more often, even big leagues, and obviously analytical thing or what, but they're playing on the grass. I mean, the thing is, you've got to play a little deeper. I say like in a baseline, we call it, there was four depths. You know, four, uh, one depth is all the way back, two is double play depth, three is on the grass, halfway, and four is in, on the, you know, playing in. So I say with nobody out, man in third, say it's the seventh inning, it's a tie game or within one run, you know, they're not going to go unless it's through the infield. So the infield should play halfway, like basically in a baseline. You get, you know, a little blooper. You can have a chance of catching it. You a little more range on ground balls. And now with one out, the contact play may be on. So you got to play on, on, on the grass because one out, the guy might be going, getting a jump on the ball on the ground, which is a really good play with the right runner and the right guy on deck and so forth. There's a lot of factors going to all the strategy. And it's not just the runner on third. It's the guy on deck and then the guy maybe after him. So it's like, you know, now you got to play on the grass. But. I just don't know why, you know, some of these guys play in. I heard one guy say, well, they want to catch a ground ball off the dirt. Well, infield in the big leagues is like, you know, there's no bad hops here. When I played, there were lips and all that kind of stuff. But you still got to play the percentages. You play the game the right way. I mean, I saw a game lost not too long ago where there was a blooper over the shortstop's head that if he was playing halfway, he would have caught it. But he was playing in, the ball fell in, so now you got a bigger inning coming up. Well, those are some great, great points uh, that Dave uh, brought up there, and then you answered. I mean, it's it's amazing, um, and, and I think you nailed it really with um, teaching. I mean, it, I, one of the most fascinating things is is you know you do you spend time with George Kissel, and everyone I've talked to about George Kissel says the same thing. He he was the best of the best, and and even going back to your Steinbrenner days, he you know. Uh, I guess maybe because of his football background, but Steinbrenner realized the value of teaching, and uh, and and it's not as things. This is what this is my big pet peeve with major leagues and minor leagues right now. People are not being taught the game; they don't know the game. I mean, I watched the play yesterday. Jeter Downs was at third base. He's a ground a man on third. Um, ground ball hit to his, you know, towards the line. And he he grabs it and throws right into the runner's back. You know they don't even understand how to how to you know where where to where to, where to aim it for home and things like that. So my question is before we get to some other ones, but this is what's driving me nuts. How come so many pop ups are dropping? I know there's a lot more pop ups now because of the the uh, uppercut swings, but how come so many pop ups are dropping in major league games between players? My guess is they haven't been using the fungo and, and they don't practice it at all. Well, first of all, Kevin, they don't use the fungo. They use a little machine hitting pop-ups. And what's uh-huh. worse than that, I know when I was first coach, I hit pop-ups. I could do it. I used to hit pop-ups to the catcher. I, would, I could do it because you practice it. So you took a little pride in your fungos. But the thing is, the pop-up priority, I'm sure they all practice that. They should. That's one of the first things you learn in, in rookie ball. You should learn in high school. But pop-up, pop-up priority on a ball between the infielders and the outfielder is the infielder's ball until the outfielder calls it. So the infielder goes back, you know, with his back to the infield, he's going back, and if he doesn't hear anything, he, he tries to catch it. But once the outfielder can catch it, he's got to call him off, and uh, it's the outfielder's ball. But like I said, it's the infielder's ball, but he does not call it, because if he calls it as he's running back, he may not hear the outfielder call it. The only time the infielder would call it, if he gets back, he, he uh, turns around where he's facing the infield, then he can wave his arms and, you know, call it, I got it, I got it. But I saw the Yankees, I think LeMahieu, two times in two games it was, I think. There was ball between him and the outfielders, and he went out and the ball dropped. But that's just basic fundamentals of they have to call it and they have to know what the thing is. But the infielder has priority until the outfielder calls it. But the infielder does not call it until he's maybe turned around facing the infielder he's camped underneath it. Uh, that's that's great information. And, um, and, and, and like you say, I'm glad you brought up the fungo because – I remember when I started covering, you always had one or two coaches on a team that could really handle the fungo and could hit those sky-high pop-ups to the catcher and do all those things. 
in the later years of covering, I don't even know if I ever saw that again. Like you said, they used the machine. And then it's gotten so poorly that in the last week I've seen the Red Sox three pop-ups drop in the infield grass. I mean, uh, yeah. that's just no communication between anybody. And it's it's I, I think that the the answer here is that if you don't practice stuff enough, it does it doesn't work for you. And uh, that must be frustrating for you as a teacher when you see some of these things going on in baseball today. Well, it is very frustrating watching it. But I tell you what, some infielders, some guys don't like to catch pop-ups. I think George Brett was one of the best players that I ever seen in baseball. I coached him, but he wanted nothing to do with a pop-up. I mean, he'd take it if he had to, but he's all up for somebody else to call it off. But the thing is, is, again, it's taking charge. I saw a game yesterday where the shortstop caught a ball halfway between first and second base. But he came in, he took charge right away, and it was in, in an A-ball game I saw in Clearwater. And this kid took charge right away, and he caught it. Now, the first baseman, I think he lost it, you know, in the sky or whatever, but uh, he wasn't going to catch it. Anyway, this kid took over, and I think that's what you need. You need somebody to take charge. But, again, there's there's pop-up priority infield also. And at shortstop, once he calls it, the conversation's over. Okay. And okay. that's that's where it comes. And, uh, you know, a lot of times with these shifts and everything, you don't know where they're coming from half of them because some guys want – I mean, I've seen four-man outfields where there's no one on the left side of the infield. And – uh now there's no one like the ball gets, you know, around third base side. Nobody can get to it. But, uh, you know, basically a catcher should never catch a ball in fair territory. And uh, the first baseman, third baseman should call him off. And if worse comes to worse, I think the pitcher should call him off. I mean, sure. the pitcher pitcher's a pretty good athlete, but you very rarely see a pitcher catch a pop-up. But he needs to catch someone once in a while because it's not real high and no one can get there. And plus, even a shortstop's coming in, sometimes go trip over the mound. There's a lot of factors. But, again, it's, it's called – Common sense is called anticipate, and uh, that's a big thing in the game. You got to anticipate, and uh, you know, figure out what's going to happen. And when it happens, you can you know sell the you make the play. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the you you're seeing a game in the in the Florida State League because um, and you make some great points there about how you know how to coordinate catching those pop ups so people understand and, and work at that at a young age. And um, but the lines you mentioned. Uh, uh, you know, being at a minor league game and in and, and, and that level now, they have lines, a diagonal line basically off the second base. So where the shortstop and second baseman, kind of like a no man's land where they can't go. Uh, uh, what does that look like in person? And what are your thoughts about that? Uh, just the same old stuff. I can't, you know, some of the stuff I can't stand. I mean, you know, I know that I wish the hitters would learn how to hit rather than yes. def- tell yes. defense. You can't play here. You can't play there. You can't tell a manager where to play his defense. I mean, if the players are dumb enough that they can't hit the ball the other way or even bunt the ball, you know, down the third baseline or even push the ball toward first base. I mean, taking a, taking a shift away makes no sense to me. You're taking a strategy away. Just like, you know, there's pitchers and the relievers come in, three batter minimum. I mean, that you take a lot of guys. I mean, some of these guys that are left-handed specialists, you know, you destroy their skill level in, in the strategy. I mean, both you is the best. At uh, you know, bringing lefty, righty, and stuff like that, and you can't tell a manager how to manage because of well, that that was a speed up rule. But the best thing they did in the minor leagues, in in a ball here, when I'm watching, and I and now we go to big league game, watch that. It drags on and on because it takes forever to got to throw the ball. The batter steps out of the box, but in low A, they have a, a time clock, and they enforce it. I think it's 18 seconds with no one on base, and 14 with someone on base. So the, the game moves along well. It has a little flow to it. And it's a lot quicker game. And it's not, not less dead time, so to speak. But, again, I mean, you know, in the old days, we used to play pepper all the time. When I managed in the minor leagues, we couldn't take BP. We all went out in the outfield and we played pepper. And pepper is just a miniature baseball game. You got three guys alongside each other. You may be 10 feet apart, 15 feet apart. And you control the head of the bat. You hit one to the guy on the left. hit one to the guy in the middle. hit one to the guy on the right. And once in a while, we put a guy deep and hit one to him. And, uh, you know, it's fielding practice, and it's, it's batting practice. It's control the head of the bat. I know guys throw 100 miles an hour now, but there are times where a hitter could just go down a cage, just learn and just stay inside the ball, hit the ball the other way. Like I watch a game in Tampa Bay and the Yankees, both teams use a four-man outfield. Well, all of a sudden, there's like nobody on the left side of the infield. And they're down two runs. I mean, home run, single, walk, same thing. The next guy comes to the plate. So you got to get yourself on base. But no, they swing away. They hit a bullet right at the second baseman's out in the short right field. They say, well, I hit the ball hard. Well, you hit the ball hard, but you know what? 
It's all about trying to win the game. It's not about creating stats. It's about win the game. And if you play the game right way, the stats will take care of themselves. But I, I don't know why some of these big power guys, they hit a home run, what, maybe one out of 20 times, maybe one out of 30 times, and they're still trying to home run. You're down two or three runs. So you hit a home run, you're still down one or two runs. Get on base and keep the line moving, so to speak. But, again, the more I watch it, sometimes you wonder if they're really trying to win or just trying to create their stats. And, unfortunately, they get paid for stats. And, to me, when I evaluate a player and when I'm coaching and managing, I, I look at a player and say, can he help us win the game? Some guys said 250 can help you win. Some guys said 320 they can't help you win because they just don't do the little things to help you win games. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, Bob, as far as techniques go, I want you to just kind of sound off on where you stand on the one knee catching. We're seeing that become prevalent throughout professional baseball. I was at a youth tournament this week. I'm seeing kids doing it. What's your thoughts on the one knee catching? Well, I think somebody from Minnesota dreamt that up. To me, I've seen more balls get by the catcher in the last few years than ever. I mean, a catcher to me is he calls a good game, he can block balls, he can throw runners out. That's what a good catcher is. Just think about pitch framing. I don't buy it. I don't know how a guy can be no one pitch framer in a year, one year, and next year he goes in the middle of the pack. The pitch framing depends on the pitcher, the hitter, the umpire, and the catcher's last. Another thing, the thing that really bothers me is when they catch a ball like maybe eight inches outside and drag it into the plate like they're going to trick the umpire. I know one thing. Ken Kaiser was umpiring right now. <clears throat> he was umpiring when I first came to the big leagues. If somebody pulled the ball in like that, he slapped him on the side of the head, probably knocked him into the dugout because you're showing the umpire up. And I think that's just, uh, I don't buy it. I mean, <clears throat> maybe get a lower, lower target. But the thing is, I don't buy the fact that you can steal strikes. You can take strikes away if you drag the ball out of strike zone. Like a lot of catches, you know, in a low pitch, they, they stab at it and bring it down. And it makes it look like it is a ball. But to bring a ball from outside the plate and over the plate, dragging it in, to me, you're not going to fool the good umpire. And big league player umpires, most of them are really good. <clears throat> so I, I'm not big on I'm not big on that down on one knee stuff. Now with nobody on base, different story. But you got runners on base, or you got two strikes and hitter, ball gets by it, you can go to first base. I think you got to be up where you can move laterally. The secret, of, you know, blocking balls for catchers is square your body off. So when it hits the dirt and you block it, it goes back toward the pitcher. It doesn't go to the toward the first base or toward third base. Because it goes back in front of you, you still got to keep you know you keep the runners where they are. And keep the batter runner from going first on strike three. And that takes work. You know, that takes going down to the bullpen and working it. Because I remember all the times I used to see catchers do that. And uh, I didn't mean to interrupt, Dave. I'm sure you got another one right there. So go ahead. No, no. that's. The, I, I knew he had a stance on that, pardon the pun. And I think it's right in line with how we how we feel it. From a, from a uh, mechanic standpoint, does that not make it harder to block balls, though? As Kevin's talking about, you mentioned getting it back down, dead in the ball toward the pitcher when you're on that one knee. Well, yeah, if you're on your right, excuse me, if you're on your right knee and the ball's to your right, it's tough to slide over there and keep your body square. <clears throat> same, same thing if you're on your left knee, you're going the other way. So I don't know. I watch catchers. I see one time's right knee and another time's left knee. I'm trying to figure out what knee they're going to. <laughs> but I, I don't know what, I don't know. I mean, it's some gimmick. I think it's a gimmick more than anything else. Okay. Yeah. I mean, a good catchers. I mean, Bob Boone, I talked to Boone all the time. <clears throat> I mean, he was he was the best, but he used to slide his legs a little bit. <clears throat> Excuse me. He'd slide his legs rather than drag the ball in. And he was a, he was a master at it. <clears throat> but um, I don't know. I'm not a catching guy, but I've seen a lot of good catchers, and the best catchers to me are guys who can block a ball and keep the ball in front of him, keep the, the runner from taking the extra base when he's not stealing. Yeah, no, I think those are great points. I, you know, we, we had, we've heard a lot the last couple of years on this whole sign stealing and whatnot. And, and you threw a, you threw a nice phrase at me and I want you to expound upon it. Um, I think it had to do with Dick Hauser. You know, he said, I, I, I'll give the sign two or three times with an indicator. I'd rather have two teams know it instead of none, meaning his team's missing it. So what's your thoughts on the whole, uh, on signs with, with players? We see these guys with wristbands now. They're looking at wristbands. They're calling out numbers. They're premeditated. What's your first, thoughts on it? First of all, third base coach doesn't get too many signs because they don't hit and run very often. They don't, they don't steal very often. I mean, usually a guy that steals has a green light. And uh, <clears throat> that's another thing. I, I don't think a guy should have a blanket green light, but I used to have guys, I have Otis Nixon. I, you know, I, I wipe one side of my chest, and that's like, you know, you can go. 
If I shut it off, I go to the other side, it means don't steal now. And, you know, so you got to give him the chance to pick his pitch. <clears throat> but, you know, there's really hardly any hit and runs. So as far as stealing the coach's third base signs, I don't know. I can't say you can do that. I, I coached 12 years in the big leagues. I never heard a player say to another player, when you got on second base, I got to catch your signs. Now, you can tell where he's setting up. Like if he's setting up inside the right-handed hitter, he's probably going to be a fastball. So, I mean, you, you can know if it's, you know, that's where good base stealers, they'll see where the catch is sitting up to see if it's going to be a breaking ball or a fastball. But as far as somebody, uh, you know, giving signs from second base, first of all, you're only on there for like two or three pitches most of the time. And there's so many ways to disguise your signs that uh, it's very tough to be confident. Now, I coached first base my first three years in the big leagues, and I could see some catcher signs. But I'll be honest with you, I was afraid to give them to the hitter because if I was wrong, he gets one on the side of the head. I'd feel bad about that. So <laughs> yeah, I, I really didn't get one as a hitter either. No. And I mean, it's like, again, a good hitter can like kind of read where the catcher is and kind of figure out maybe what he's going to throw. But it gets back to the old thing I always said the guys have to watch the game. If you watch the game, if in the dugout, you can see what this pitcher is trying to do. I looked in the dugout the other day, and it was on TV. And guys are looking at their iPads, like probably the last at bat. They watch the game. You know, Larry Bow and I caught, uh, coached together with the Dodgers. We positioned the position, uh, positioned the players. We had the, we had some stat thing that, that showed us what it was. We went over all the charts, and we positioned them. But when we finished the meeting, I all said, "Okay, this is where you're going to start. This is what the uh, stats, your charts show you. Now, what you got to do is watch the game." Maybe the guy's dragging his bat that day. Maybe the pitcher can't get the ball across corner. So you watch the game. You can kind of figure out where the ball might be hit. But if the pitcher don't know where it's going, how do you know where he's going to hit it? But I know they had, a lot of these guys hit into the shift, and the shift kind of narrows that area in the field, no doubt about it. But I say it's the, pitcher, the hitter's fault, not the defensive fault, that is killing the game. Yeah. Kevin, you wanted to add something? Yeah, those are such great points, and I hope, you know, I- and what we, like Dave said earlier, what we try to do with this show is, you know, kind of raise your baseball IQ. And people are very lucky here today to have a chance to really, uh, you know, your your baseball IQ is off the charts. And uh, you study the game, plus you're, you're, you're a completely honest person. And and another part that you've talked about a little bit, but, you, you, you know, in coaching and managing, especially in the minor leagues, you got to deal with personalities and figure out what players and what makes them tick and how to how to reach them. And I guess Lenny Dykstra was that kind of player for you as well, too, because Lenny, uh, Lenny's Lenny. Well, when I first saw Lenny, I was managing in Greensboro with the uh, Yankees, and he was he's just signed with the Mets. He was in uh, I forget the name of the town though, but uh, <clears throat> I got a good memory. It just gets short once in a while, but I'll think of it. <clears throat> but you see, this kid looked like he's a bad boy. He looked like he's thirteen years old. But he's a tough, you can see he's tough. Now, don't just think two years later, I manage him. So, Manny, uh, Lenny, you know, his whole thing, he wanted to be the best. And he was cocky. And uh, he, you know, rubbed people the wrong way at times. But to me, he was a great player. And he, he always wanted to play, always wanted to win and everything. And once in a while, he'd dog it a little bit. So, uh, we're playing uh, one day. And, you know, I said, what, are you tired? He said, no. I said, okay. So, anyway, we're playing. And they come before the game. Mookie Wilson was hurt, and they're going to bring Lenny up to the big leagues. So, I, you know, in those days, used to play in the game. Now, again, they sit him out of the game so they don't get hurt. But, you know, Lenny played. So, by the eighth inning, Lenny hits a triple. <clears throat> Excuse me. He comes in the third. I said, where the hell were you? He said, what do you mean? I said, I thought it'd be an inside the park home run. <laughs> so, I turn away from him and walk away back to the coaching box. And he's looking around, like, you know, what, 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 what? You know, that's how he talked. So, anyway, after the game, we win the game. We're shaking hands. I said, Lenny, I want to see you in my office after the game. Oh, boy. Now, wait, wait for the reporters to get out. I got to talk to you. So now, you know, 15, 20 minutes later, he walks in. He said, what, what, what? He says, I said, what, what? He sits down. I said, I said, you can, you're going to the big leagues. He thought I was going to chew him out. <laughs> he he hustled, but I, it looked like he was going to nail him. But anyway, he I told him he's going to the big leagues. He had to turn white. I said, no, look, it, Mookie's hurt. You're only going to be up there for like uh, – maybe 15 days, 10 days, whatever it takes to get him off the DL. So I said, I had some sport jackets in my office. I said, try the sport jacket on. I said, because the way you've been wearing around here, you can't wear up there. So he, he took it and everything. So long story short, he goes up there. He plays pretty well, but you know how Lenny is. I guess one reporter said to him, when you came up, I thought you were going to play every day. So, of course, Lenny says, well, if David really want to win, David Johnson, if he really want to win, he'd play me every day. Perfect. So, that didn't go over too good with Davies, you know. <laughs> so, 
now he comes back down and, uh, you know, he told me he had some good times. He said he was out there one day and some guy in the stand said, hey, you get lost off your high school field trip or what? So, I mean, they get in all kinds of trouble. But anyway, Lenny was great. You know, maybe a month later, they call me, McElbain and Cash, and call me again and say, uh, Mookie's hurt again, and Davey wants Terry Blocker. Uh. I said, well, I'll tell you what, Lenny's the guy. But Davey doesn't like Lenny. I said, well, he should like him because he's tough. I said, you should bat him lead off and bat uh, Backman second because Backman can't drive the ball like Lenny can, and Lenny can drive in Santana with bat eighth or the pitcher from second, or, yeah, whatever. So, But Davey and I, we were best of friends up until then. And, uh, you know, he used to call me about players all the time. And uh, David's a great baseball guy. And we, we thought alike in a lot of other things. But when that came up, so anyway, McElmey and Cashman, I mean, they say, call Davey. I call Davey. Davey says, no, I want blocker. So, well, I think you're making a mistake, but I don't know. So anyway, McElmey and Cashman called me back. <clears throat> and they said, what did Davey say? I said, well, he wants blocker still. I said, well, blocker's a good player, but he's not Lenny Dykeser. Right. So... They said, what do you really think? I said, I'd love to win here. I'd love to have Dykes here, but my job is to make the big league team better. And Dykes has got to make them better. So they stay by the phone. That was before cell phones and everything. Right. They said, stay by the phone. So I say, 15 minutes later, call back and said, uh, send Dykes here. So I called Lenny and I said, Lenny, we're in Rochester. I said, congratulations, going back. And I look at this. You got two ears. You got one mouth. Listen, don't say anything. Okay. And just go out there and play, play your butt off. And you could be a good player, but just, you know, play like you know how to play. And, you know, get on base, blah, blah, blah. So after that time, Davey never talked to me. Like, he, I got his way and not his way, but that was Davey Johnson. So that was that's when I left the Mets after that year because I knew I was a dead-end street. <clears throat> but I had to tell him what I, I, had to tell him what I thought. <laughs> it hurt me as far as winning, but my job was to make them better. It wasn't to make, you know, AAA win. Absolutely. And that, and that's a great point. And, and I think uh... – <clears throat> It shows, you know, that you, you do your job the best of your ability and, you, and you're honest, and sometimes it rubs people the wrong way. I mean, believe me, there's many people I've rubbed the wrong way through the years, uh, but it, but I've always feel good about it because I've been honest about it, and, and it's an honest situation, and including little things like, but, you know, basically, you know, three years ago, four years ago, trying to get the Yankees to sign Aaron Judge to a long-term deal and writing those columns then. I mean, they would have yeah. saved themselves so much money if they did that. But I think you, you tap into a really interesting uh, point here where management, sometimes they have preconceived notions and, and you're out there seeing the game or whoever is seeing the game, you know, every night and, and you're reacting to the game. And sometimes I think that's lost in the modern day game. And I think that's why it's important for guys to have you, uh, you know, uh, as, uh, you know, giving some advice to the GM and, and, and things like that. And, and I know the year – you guys won the World Series not too long ago. What was that experience like, and how did it all come together for the Nationals at that point? Well, you know, I was fortunate to finally get a World Series ring. I was close. Actually, the year I left the Mets, I left in after 85, they won a World Series. So if I stay one more year, and I could have stayed. They offered me a couple other jobs. But they you know, wanted me to be an infield coach or advanced scout, whatever. I didn't want to do that. So I left, and it, it all worked out. Like I said, the baseball guys take care of you. I mean, Davey and I had it out. But it worked out best for me because I ended up in the big leagues two years later with the Kansas City sure. Royals under John Walton. So it all worked out. But, uh, you know, as far as scouting, um, you know, I'm, I'm a field guy that scouts. I'm not a real scout. I mean, I remember one of the scouts my first year with Kansas, with uh, Washington who were in meetings and stuff like that. He looked at me and said, I don't know where the hell you're coming from, but what you're saying is I don't, I don't agree with it. And I said, well, I'm coming from being a, a guy I want to coach or manage. I mean, yeah, you recommend a guy. Do I want to manage this guy? And again, the whole thing about winning is his makeup, his toughness. I mean, Lenny Dykstra made himself a great player. He made a team better. And that's where a scout, I mean, a coach can see that probably better than a scout. A scout can look at tools and skills and stuff like that. But a, a coach, your manager, being in the dugout, he knows what that can, guy can do to help you win. But anyway, so for us winning in the, in the World Series in 2019, I mean, we had, a, we had a good team. But you know what? I don't know if we were the best team, but we played the best. And our guys believed in each other. They picked each other up. And uh, uh, Dan Jennings and I, we scouted the Cardinals. You know, they, they, we beat the Cardinals. You know, we gave them a scouting report on the Cardinals, advance report. And then Casey McKeon joined us. We scouted Houston. We gave him a scouting report. And we beat both those teams. So I felt pretty good that we had something to do with us winning the World Series. And coaches, 
you know, praised us and thanked us and everything else for some of the tips we gave them, what, what they're going to do and how to attack their pitchers, how to, you know, how to attack their hitters and so forth. So that was, you know, it made us feel good. It wasn't the same as being a coach, right? but, it's, but it was, it was almost the next best thing. And, uh, but you know, we had a great organization. We do, you know, you know, uh, Mike Rizzo is a baseball guy. Not too many of them as managing. I mean, general managing are baseball guys, but they're more or less analytical guys, I think. But Riz, he knows about the analytics, but he knows about baseball. He knows what it takes to win. And we're struggling big time right now, but I think that he'll figure it out. Might not be for a couple more years, but uh, it goes in cycles, as you know. And we had to trade two key guys last year, but you got to reload once in a while and, and see what happens. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and obviously it's way above your pay grade and all this stuff. But you know, Soto is the talk. Juan Soto now. Um, maybe just uh, give, give the uh, give give our listeners a little uh, perspective of what you see of him as a player. I mean, we all see him, but uh, you know his his ability at a young age and what you see for this guy going forward. Well, Juan Soto is a special kid. I mean, I, I got to meet him a couple of years ago when he first came up, and uh, he looks like a baseball player. Not everybody in baseball looks like a baseball player for me. He acts like a baseball player. He plays hard. He's a student of the game. He's struggling now. He turned down $330 million, I guess, like that. And I don't know how much that affected him, you know, because he started off slow. But he's still one of the best hitters in the game. I mean, everybody wants him. I don't know if anybody has enough to give us. I don't know if any team has enough inventory or depth to give us what we should get for him or need to get for him. But I don't know where it stands as far as trading him. I would think that maybe to wait for somebody else to buy the team and make it up, let him decide if he wants to re-sign him. But I don't know. He may trade him tomorrow. I really don't know. But it's a tough, tough job for Mike Rizzo to figure this one out because, like I said, watch, there's never too much you can get for him. But then again, how many teams have, you know, four quality players, you know, probably two big leaguers and two real good prospects that they can afford to give up. So I don't know where it stands. It's unfortunate that baseball, baseball is like that. <clears throat> I said about 15 years ago when I was with Kansas City, and I said, if I was a commissioner, what I would do, if somebody signed a guy, a player that I developed, that Carlos, Carlos Beltran was in, that's what I thought with Carlos Beltran, okay? Elliot Bear was the general manager. Carlos was not going to sign back with us because we couldn't afford him, Kansas City Royals. Elliot was out looking for players to get in the trade. So meantime, the fans had ticked off because we got to get rid of him before his contract is up. And Allen's out there trying to get the best he could for him. He had to put John Buck and, uh, and a couple other guys who were, you know, they were good players, but not great players. But I say this, the team that signed Carlos Beltran, just like when you sign a Japanese player, you pay the Japanese team X amount of money, X amount of money to sign him. So if, say, Carlos Beltran, I forget what he got, say he got, a, you know, $100 million. We should get 10% or whatever percentage, $10 million back because we developed him. That's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah. So now what happened, you're not out there desperate to get the best thing you can for him. You take that money that you get from the team that signs them and uh, use that to replenish your, your organization. But I knew that thing go. I'm going to go too far because, you know, the agents will never go for that probably. But, you know, why should an organization like the small market team develop a guy and also have to basically give him away? You're like, what else with Soto? I mean, you know, Soto, you're never going to get the talent back to make up for him. It's not so much what he does help you win a game, but I watch a game. I watch our games because I want to watch Soto hit. Players go, I mean, fans go to watch uh, Soto play. And again, he plays hard. He's, he's a pretty good right fielder. He's a hell of a hitter. He's, he's a decent base runner. He can steal a base. And he's going to keep getting better. And the thing is, he's a baseball player that loves to play, and he's going to get better. And even though he's one of the best hitters in the game right now, he's still going to get better. I know Dave kicked us all off talking about how you were, you know, you kind of coach coaches and uh, and things like that and teach these guys. Uh, I got one more I wanted to ask you about because, he, you know, he's he's back in the game now with the Rockies. Um, and I, you know, knew him through all the years. But uh, you, you had Clint Hurdle as a player, too. And uh, t- tell the story and then maybe a little bit about what you think about Clint Hurdle as, a, uh, you know, what, what he's done. But uh T- 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 I think it's a great story. I know. I know you're putting together a book and stuff, but uh, tell us the story about the time you, uh, uh, what you did with the spread and uh, and uh, the spread, so people understand. Back in the day, it isn't like now where you have a 24-hour chef at your disposal. The spread was a ta- uh, tables that's a spread out in the clubhouse, and teams would eat off that table 
after the game. And if it was a doubleheader, sometimes they would spread out a snack in between sandwiches, whatever. But give us that, uh, give us, uh, and then I'll turn it over to Dave to wrap it up. But uh, give us that story about Clint Hurdle. All right, first of all, Clint was one of the special guys, one of my favorite guys ever managed. Okay, so uh, Clint, and I was managing double A, 1983. Clint's playing in triple A with Davey. They win a championship. Clint hits over 300. He has some great stats. But Davey gets a big league job and doesn't take Clint with him because he didn't have room for him. So they sent him back to triple A. So I got him, and we're going to make him a catcher. Like, could he be maybe a second, third catcher? And he got, you know, he was decent. But he ran back to the backstop a whole lot of times when we first started doing that. Yep, yep, fetch. And so, yeah, anyway, uh, so he's like pressing. I, I know he's pressing real hard, so he, he can't even, he forgot how to hit. I mean, he's out there, he's struggling big time. And we lose some games, we didn't play well, and I really have a little meeting, but, you know, I can't really go crazy because I'd bury Clint. Because all he had to do sometimes put a ball in play, and we could have won the game or at least tied the game. So one day I brought him in my office and said, Clint, let me tell you something. I know you're struggling. I know you want to get back to the big leagues. I know you're a rookie of the year. I say you had a great career so far. I don't think your career is over, but the way it's going right now, I don't want to be your last manager. He looked at me. I said, Clint, you know, you're, you're terrible. I think you're feeling sorry for yourself. And I could have, you know, he could have choked me or he could have choked himself. But I said, go out there and just be aggressive and have some fun, okay? So sure enough, he got better. It's like something went off. And he told me we spoke at a banquet together. And he said, you know, you, you said it to me. You almost cut me down from my noose because I was ready to hang myself. But it almost like put the, you know, put the stuff on the table. So anyway, so we're playing. We got a little streak going, but we're playing doubleheader. In the first game, we played very lethargic, and we were terrible. So we bring him in. I have a little meeting. So wait a minute. We got to talk about some things. First of all, you know, we're playing terrible. You're not hungry. You know, I was like, we're nuts. And I'm a mild-mannered guy, but I flipped <laughs> the, the tables over. I threw the mustard bottles off the wall. I went crazy. Kevin Mitchell told me later, he said, I was scared of you. He said, you probably should have been because I know what the hell I was doing. So anyway, I said, you guys ain't hungry. You're not eating. Get out here. We eat after the second game. So we go out there, and they're all looking around. and said, geez, this guy was a nice guy. I thought, no, he's nuts. So anyway, we get first inning. Clint's batting cleanup. First two guys get on. I think it's one out. He hits one off the top of the wall in right field. Comes in at third base for a triple. And I'm still, like, a little pumped up. Is that the way to swing the bat? You know, you know, I'll say, nice going. Tragedy. He looked at me, and he said, Shafe, let me tell you something. It would have been a home run if I had a sandwich in between games. <laughs> That's great. But he also had great quotes. He always said, you know, he's great with the younger players. And, you know, when he got the job, actually, when I got my first job in the big leagues, he's one of the first guys to call me to congratulate me. And we've been friends ever since. I haven't talked to him in a while now, but he used to call me about some players. I called him about some players. And uh, one of the best people, and I've been fortunate being around a lot of great people in baseball. No, those are, those are great stories. And I, I like the fact that, you know, that old adage, you know, great players want to be coached. And I, I disagree. I think your approach, Bob, is ideal. Great players want to be told the truth. And I, I think that's a theme our audience can take away from today is that when I mean, you're going to hit guys right between the eyes, but you also know when to pat them on the back, when to leave them alone and, and when to pump them up. I've got one, one quick story I want you to tell, too. You, you talked about George Brett Mark, uh, Martin with me. George Brett, obviously one of the greatest hitters of all time, one of the greatest third basemen of all time, one of the greatest players of all time. Um, talk about his experience trying to coach Mark Teen a little bit so our audience can get just how hard coaching is. What George always said, he said, I can never be a coach. He said he could do it, but his perfect example, like I could do it, but he, he knew what he was doing, but it's tough to teach someone else. And his whole thing was he had that weight shift and, you know, he'd let, you know, he'd load it up real good. And Mark Tehan, who he got in the trade for Beltran, he was a good player, but he just didn't wasn't really a good hitter yet. So one day in spring training, we're in surprise, and I'm walking by the cage, and George's out there with Tehan. He's been out there for like maybe 45 minutes already. So I walk by, and George's telling me, you got to do this, you got to do this. And he, he couldn't do it. So finally, George gets upset, and he says, why don't you buy a house in Omaha? Because you're never going to get back to Kansas City. <laughs> and I said, George, I told you, I'm doing real nice. Well, he was just ticking me off. He said, but... But Tehan did get back and everything. And then George did become a hitting coach for a little while. But George had a wealth of knowledge. But uh, you know, not everybody's cut out to be a coach. I mean, one thing about coaching, that there's guys you can teach, other guys you can train. I mean, some guys you can talk to them and tell them what to do and how to do it, and they remember it. Other guys don't remember it. But through repetition, they can get better. So that's where, like I say, you got to train some guys. And the other guys you can teach by just talking to them. But, again, 
when you teach someone something, you got to tell them why. Just like, you know, the old rule in baseball, don't get thrown out of third base for the first out or third out. And it's like, why? Because if you're on second base with no outs, you can score in two outs. You know, ground ball, fly ball, you can score. And with two outs, you get thrown out of third base for a third out, you're still in scoring position on second base with two outs. So, I mean, but you got to explain to them why. And whenever you teach, you got to tell the player, this is what you ought to do and tell them why. Well, I love it. Obviously, I mean, you exemplified that today. Our audience uh, spoiled today by Bob Schaefer being on the show. Uh, Kevin, great segment. Love the questions. Thanks for probing those stories out of, out of Bob today. And Bob, we have to have you back again. I, I know we probably have, we could probably do eight to 10 shows with you here. So just to give us a promise, we'll get you back soon. All right. I just want one more thing I'd say to yeah. coaches. The first thing, when you coach, you can't be afraid to lose. I watch uh, coaches do certain things because they're, they're afraid to lose. I mean, you got to try to win. And, you know, it might not work. Like, maybe put a hit and run instead of a bunt if you still do that. I mean, I used to hit and run a lot of times instead of bunting. And, uh, but, you know, if you're afraid to lose, you're probably going to lose. But you got to play to win, and the winning will take care of itself. Great advice, Shafe, all the way across the board. I love that. And, uh, audience, make sure that you uh, follow us on Amazon, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. Make sure you follow Kevin on Ball Nine. A great article this past week with it, AMBS underscore Kernan, America's most beloved sports writer. Please follow us on Twitter at Coach and Kernan, or you can email us. Audience, you've been fantastic with emails. We get 500 plus a week uh, for our guests and our. Our resident expert show. It's at coaching or it's coaching Kernan at protonmail.com. Bob, thanks again. Kevin, thank you again. And we look forward to our next show tomorrow with our resident experts. Thank you for having me.